we sang it a few moments ago, you remember the words? I've got Jesus, how could I want more? But we still want more, don't we? Let's be honest. Shake your head, this means yes. We still want more. If you drove up in a vehicle today, if you live in a home, if you've got clothes on your back, you want more. Okay? So we got Jesus, but we still want more. And the question is, how much more? How much more? You want a whole lot more? We want only what's necessary for our lives. We, we need to kind of think about that the next five weeks. Because for the next five weeks, of course, we're going to be looking at a campaign called Generations Following. I'm not calling it a fundraising campaign. That's way too narrow. It's a faith-raising campaign. You see, in the next five weeks, we're going to be getting ready to, to do what we need to be doing for the next three years. This campaign will last three years. But will it really focus on it in the next five weeks? It will be our bread and butter for the next five weeks. And we've scheduled it to fit into this time slot so that we can really focus our attention on this campaign. What I want you to think about is how God wants to change your life in the next five weeks. How does God need to change your life in the next five weeks? I promise you I'll be thinking about that myself and praying about that too. How does God want to change you? How does God need to change you, change us, in the next several weeks? You see, if all we do in this fundraising campaign or this faith-raising campaign is raise enough money to build a new building, then we really will have failed. As I said a few moments ago, our 2004 through 2007 journey of faith was one of the highest spiritual times in the life of our church family. And it did a whole lot more than just raise the money to build a new children's building. It changed our lives. And it's time for us to have a life change again. It's time for us to have a fresh meeting with Jesus Christ. To have the Holy Spirit work in our hearts and lives and do something new in our church and within us too. You see, I don't want us just to grow in our giving through this campaign. I want us to grow in our living. I don't want us to just focus on budget planning in this campaign. I want us to focus on a biblical perspective on all of our lives. I don't want us to just focus on finances in this campaign. But I want us to focus on faith. Our faith that will be grown. And our faith that will end up in new changes in our lives. To make us more of what God wants us to be. And that's going to happen if you tune in and plug in. That's going to happen if you get with us on this campaign. It will happen in your life. It will happen in my life. And it will happen as we allow God to do work within us. We begin our campaign this morning with a simple message entitled, Simple Statements About Stewardship. It's a foundational message. Any sermon on giving or series of sermons on giving, and by the way, series are always more effective than single sermons. Any series of sermons on giving needs to start with a good foundation. I believe this is a good foundation for this series. As we think about a steward, a steward is a manager of something that belongs to someone else. The word manager is good there, and we started to use the word manager, but it's not quite full enough. The word steward is a biblical word. It's a, it's a little fuller word. It means that you don't own it. You're just borrowing it for a while. And as you borrow it, you have a responsibility to make good use of it. So to be a steward is to be a manager of something that belongs to someone else, but you're responsible to manage it well. And a good steward is faithful. A good steward manages that which has been entrusted to them well. And so what I want you to see this morning is this. Good stewards understand and apply to their lives some simple statements about stewardship. Good stewards understand and apply to their lives 
some simple statements about stewardship. Now, the occasion of this, of course, is the building of a new student young adult building. Uh, Cara and uh, Alan did such a wonderful job a few minutes ago on the video, sharing with us, of course, what this building is going to be like. Last September, we voted as a congregation without opposition to build this new student building in a campaign that we're calling For the Generations Following. Our scripture was Psalm Psalm 48, verses 12 through 14, which says, Walk about Zion or Jerusalem. Go round about her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels, that you might tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. He will be our God forever. What we do here in the next three years will determine how the generation following looks back on us. In one point and in certain part, it will be our legacy. And we need to leave a good legacy. We need to show that we had the vision and the passion to prepare for the generations following. As we prepare our church facilities to reach the generations following, I want us to think about two things real quickly. Number one, the what, or the why of what we're building and the what of what we're building. Why do we need a new student young adult building? Well, the lighthouse, you saw it in the video a moment ago. It's torn down now. It's been raised. It's where our young adult ministry met. Uh, several massive structural problems. We, we knew the floor was spongy. I actually had someone come to me and say, our local firefighters would like to use that building uh, as a training building uh, for, for them in, in their training. And uh, I talked to some other folks who were a little bit higher up than that, and they, they said, uh, what kind of building is it? I said, well, the floors are real spongy. My fear is that these guys are going to get in there with heavy equipment and go right through the floor. And they said, well, you're probably right. They probably don't need to be running around in that building. I said, well, well that's what we thought. So we ended up just taking that building down because there was nothing else to do with it. Our CFLC space, of course, for both our student and young adult meeting, both are meeting in there now. It's already at capacity, already over 80% capacity. Our student young adult ministry is the fastest growing ministry in our church. It needs the facilities that will allow it to continue to grow and meet its full potential. And, of course, we built that beautiful children's building back in 2007 with a new wing that provided attractive and functional space for them, it's time for us to do the same thing for our student and young adult ministry. That's the why of what we're doing. How about the what? The what? It's a 12,900 square foot building. And if you go outside on the property it's going to stand on right now, I mentioned a few moments ago that you we've got flags out there that say generations following. Uh, we're, we're working it up. There's going to be more to it as time goes on. But we want you to, to take a look at that footprint and begin to just walk out there and pray over that footprint that God might help us reach this goal of building this building and have a towered reception area, worship space for 269 people, additional space for 75 more. You know, guys, it's, it's really important that you grab a vision of what is now happening and what will probably happen in the future. The future is always a guess, right? The future is always a guess. We don't know for sure. But what's happening right now and what probably is going to happen in the future is that people are going to be worshiping in ways different than we did in the 90s. The 90s was a big time for a lot of churches, including our own. We did worship in one service. Everybody got together, worshiped at the same time. It was nice and fun. We all loved it. The church grew to the point that we couldn't do that anymore. It took more than one service. Eventually it took three services for us, two Sunday schools, and we're at that point. We need to realize that worship is going to be different than it 
has been in the past. And so we're trying to facilitate that. We're trying to look to the future and say, what will the generations following need in terms of worship space and small group space? Because right now they've got two small group classrooms. For all those groups, they've got two small group classrooms. We're looking at a building that will have seven classrooms, kitchen and cafe area, recreation overflow space, four restrooms with showers. The restrooms are on different sides of the building, two on one side, two on the other side of the building. What that will allow us to do is have groups in there, be able to separate the guys from the gals, as well as have showers in each restroom and, of course, an adequate storage space, which most folks never plan for. And that's the thing that they're typically the worst, the, the most sorry for. They didn't plan for the adequate storage space. Cost for the building, estimated $2.1 million. We'll not be able to pay for it out of our regular budget. Let's be honest, folks. Lately, we hadn't even been able to pay for our regular budget. We're behind already. It's only March. Matter of fact, it's just the first Sunday in March. And we're already behind several thousand dollars. We're not going to be able to pay for that in our regular budget. What am I hoping? What am I praying for? I'm hoping, I'm praying for not only do we see our uh, revival of life and spiritual growth in our church family, but we see a revival of giving, not only to this project that we're talking about right now, but also to our budget, because that happened last time. Last time, our people not only grew tremendously in their spiritual growth, but they gave to build a $2.7 million building, and the budget was incredible. I look back on those years. You know, we're, we're a $1 million budget church. That's our budget. I'm not saying we made it, but that's our budget. Okay? We're proud to tell everybody we're a million-dollar church. But back in those days when we were doing that campaign for our children's building, we were raising $1.5, $1.6, million dollars a year. And our budget wasn't behind. God did it then, guess what? God can do it again. All it takes is willing hearts. All it takes is willing hearts. The question is, do you have a willing heart? Well, let's look at some simple statements about stewardship. The first is the simplest of all. Number one, God owns it all. God owns it all. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Why does God own it all? God owns it all because He created it all. You remember the television program MASH about the military hospital unit in Korea during the Korean War? Remember the character Radar O'Reilly? He was kind of a squirrely fellow. But Radar, of course, was the guy who, who uh, to, ordered things for the MASH unit, got things from headquarters, so to speak. And you remember what he did, what he, what he was doing on his own personal time? He ordered a Jeep and had it sent home. One part at a time. He sent his, the Jeep parts from the army to Iowa. So that when he got home, when he got away from the military, he'd have a whole Jeep waiting on him there. Now you see, he may have built that Jeep when he got back to Iowa, but guess what? It wasn't his. Because the parts were not his. God owns it all because the parts are all his. The Bible tells us, in fact... God didn't even need to start with parts. God didn't have to go to down to the building and supply store. God spoke it into his existence according to Hebrews. The book of Hebrews tells us that God spoke and the world came into existence. All its material parts. Psalm 24 verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. We are His. Not just the world, but we are His. Our mouths should praise Him. Our ears should listen to Him. Our hearts should worship Him. Our lives should serve Him. 
Cason Calloway is noted for the great statement he made on stewardship. He was the LaGrange industrialist who transformed 2,500 acres of worn-out cotton fields into the beauty of Callaway Gardens. He once said, I believe that the earth belongs to the Lord and that anyone who holds a temporary title deed... Get those words. Because those are the words that impress me the most about this quote. Temporary title deed. It ain't yours. It belongs to God. You're temporarily holding the deed to it. But you don't own it. What did he say about that? Any part of it is obligated to use it for good and to leave it better than he found it. Most of us dream of doing that. We dream of taking something and leaving it better than we found it. God owns it all. We're just stewards or managers of all that God owns. Do you realize that God even owns the air that you're breathing this very second? It all belongs to Him. It all belongs to Him. Secondly, If God owns it all, then none of your stuff is really yours. If God owns it all, then none of your stuff is really yours. That's one that can sting. 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 7 says, For we brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out of it. C.S. Lewis, of course, brilliant British author. Most famous book called Mere Christianity. But he wrote a lot of other books. My favorite book that he ever wrote was called The Screwtape Letters. Screwtape Letters is an unusual book. It's an ingenious book. It's a brilliant book. It gives great insight into God, the devil, and our human condition. In the Screwtape Letters, Screwtape is a champion and veteran demon who has been given the responsibility of mentoring his nephew named Wormwood. And Wormwood is a brand new novice deacon who's been given his first assignment and he is supposed to tempt this man and leave him to ruin and lead him to hell. Wormwood messes up, and before he knows it, his charge has become a Christian. Screwtape says, it's all right, you know, we can't wait to get to you, Wormwood. We're going to take care of you. But before we do that, you need to know that there's still plenty of ways that you can tempt your trust to do evil. Especially in the area of ownership. Make him think he owns things, everything. And Screwtape puts it this way. The sense of ownership in general is always to be encouraged. The humans are always putting up claims to ownership which sound equally funny in heaven as they do in hell. And all the time the joke is that the word mine in its fully possessive sense cannot be uttered by a human being about anything. In the long run, either our father Lucifer or the enemy Jehovah will say mine of each thing that exists and especially of each man. They will find out in the end, never fear, to whom their time, their souls, and their bodies really belong, certainly not to them, whatever happens. At present, the enemy, Jehovah says, mine, of everything on the legalistic ground that he made it. We just talked about that a moment ago. Our father Lucifer hopes in the end to say, mine, of all things, on the more realistic ground of conquest. It's not yours. You're just borrowing it. Just borrowing it for a little while. And the question then is, how are you using what you've borrowed? How are you using what you've borrowed? Are you using it to the best of your ability? Number three, simple statement. You are just a steward managing God's stuff for Him for a little while. You are just a steward managing God's stuff for Him for a little while. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2 says, Now it is required that those who have been given a trust prove themselves faithful. Since you're not an owner, but merely a borrower of those things in your life, you need to understand they don't really belong to you. God's letting you have them for a little while to use for His grace and His glory. Once a man 
said, If I had some extra money, I'd give it to God, but I only have enough to support me and my family. Same man said, If I had some extra time, I'd give it to God, but every minute is taken up with my job, my family, my clubs, and what have you. I just don't have another minute. And the same man said, If I had a talent, I'd give it to God, but I have no lovely voice, no special skill, never been able to lead a group. I can't think cleverly or quickly the way I'd like to. Well, God was touched by that man. And although it was unlike him, God gave that man the money, the time, and the glorious talent that he wanted. And then God waited. And he waited. And he waited for the man to use for him what God had given him. After a while, God shrugged his shoulders. And he took all of those things back. The money, the time, and the glorious talent. And after a while, the man said, You know, if I only had some of that money back, I'd give it to God. And if I only had some of that time back, I'd give it to God. And if I could only rediscover that glorious talent I had, I'd give it to God. And God said to that man, Oh, shut up. I think God says that sometimes. Oh, shut up. And the man told some of his friends, You know, I'm not so sure I believe in God anymore. That's what can happen to us if we don't use what God has entrusted to us in the right way. Fourthly, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on up ahead of you. I love that one. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on up ahead of you. When Suzanne and I were students at Auburn University on the uh, loveliest village of the plains, we went to a Bible study in Haley Center, which was the largest classroom building on campus, one of the classrooms where this Bible study was held, held 500 people. The name of the study leader was John Rat Riley, a former place kicker for Auburn. Don't ask me where he got the name Rat. I don't have time to explain it to you. But John Riley led that Bible study. One day, one evening, he told the story of a gentleman in his community who was actually fairly poor, but he had one treasured possession, and that treasured possession was a beautiful Cadillac automobile. And the man said that one request for his departure from this life would be that he wanted to be buried in his Cadillac. Well, the day finally came, and the heavy equipment was brought in. A huge hole was dug to lower the Cadillac into. Those that were there said it looked kind of funny to see the dearly departed sitting up behind the steering wheel being lowered into that hole. But his friends thought it was wonderful. His, two, his poor man's two friends thought it was wonderful. They, one of them looked at the man and simply said, Man, is that living? Well, no, it's not. It's dying. It's dying. You see, there are some people who believe they can take it with them, and they try to. But you can't take it with you. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, Scripture that Greg read a few moments ago. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and rats destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and rats do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You're aware that in the ancient Near East, in Palestine of Jesus' day, the three kinds of treasures or wealth that people had were finely embroidered garments... Barns full of stored grain, and of course gold or silver currency. And Jesus said, you store these things up for yourselves, but the moths are going to eat your finely embroidered garments. And the rats are going to eat your grain that you've got stored up. And thieves are going to steal your money. And what will you have left if you haven't laid up some treasures in heaven? 
In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 7, 17 through 19, it says, Command those that are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. You wonder about the uncertainty of wealth? Just let the stock market do one of its things, and you'll see how uncertain wealth really is. So uncertain, he says, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. In this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Notice the words of verse 19 again. In this way they will lay up treasures for themselves and place as a firm foundation for the coming age. Many years ago, George W. Truett, the pastor of First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas, had a wealthy member of his church invite him out to his home place to have dinner. They had dinner together in a massive home, palatial house. And then the man took Truett out to a, a place where he could see the entire property. And the man said, Do you, do you see those oil wells up there on the north side of my property? All of that belongs to me. Do you see the cattle on the south side of my property? All of that belongs to me. Do you see the wheat fields on the east side of my property? All of that belongs to me. And how about the wonderful forest on the west side of my property? All of that belongs to me. I own everything that you can see in that direction, that direction, that direction, and that direction. And the man expected Truett to congratulate him, pat him on the back, congratulate him for being such a wonderful financial success. Instead... Truett patted him on the back, but he asked the question, how much do you own in that direction? Dear friend, how much do you own in that direction? How much do I own in that direction? Because when we die, that's going to be the only direction that counts. Amen? How much do we own in that direction? And then, of course, as we move on quickly, number five, there is no growth. There is no growth in God's kingdom without risk-taking. There's no growth in God's kingdom without risk-taking. It's a four-letter word that we're growing increasingly reluctant to use, and it's the word risk, R-I-S-K. Bob Cox, the dean of the School of Education at the University of Texas at Tyler, says that most institutions go through three phases. They begin as risk-takers. They degenerate into caretakers. And they end up as undertakers. Most organizations go through, those, go through those three phases. What stage are we in at First Baptist Church in Barnesville? Our church is almost 200 years old. We ought to be undertakers by now, shouldn't we? Not if our hearts are right. If our hearts are right, we will always be risk takers. We'll never settle into caretaking. And we'll never have to experience being undertakers. In Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30, Jesus told the parable of the talents. A parable is an earthly story told to communicate a spiritual truth. This should probably be called the parable of risk-taking because it involves three men who'd been given an assignment by their employer. One was given five talents, another two talents, another one talent. A talent is a denomination of money like a $100 bill. They were given this money to invest and make more while their employer was away. The employer came back home. He found that the one that was given five talents had made five more by investing it wisely. The one who had been given two talents made two talents more by investing it wisely. But the one who had been given one talent did not want to take a risk and hid his employer's money in the ground 
and just simply gave him the one talent back. And of course, that particular employee, things did not go well for. Don't misunderstand the parable. Jesus does not expect every Christian to risk the same thing. But he expects every Christian to risk something. We cannot give equal gifts, but we can make equal sacrifices. You see, small dreams inspire nobody. And we normally dream small because we're afraid to take the risk inherent in big dreams. But God's kingdom moves forward. It advances only through the lives of those who are willing to take risks. We all want big returns on riskless investments, but it doesn't work that way. Big returns only come with big risk. Advancement in any field depends on those who are willing to take a risk. Early in the 19th century, Dr. Evan O'Neill Kane had a hunch that surgery performed with local anesthesia would not only be safer, but the recovery would be faster than surgery performed with general anesthesia. The problem was that only monkeys would help him prove his point, and they wouldn't talk to him afterwards. Then he did a risky thing. He did a very risky thing. On February 15, 1921, at the age of 60 years old, Cain, who had done nearly 4,000 appendectomies, gave himself a local anesthetic and removed his own appendix to prove his point. He was successful. And medicine moved forward because a doctor was willing to take a risk. Dear friend, the kingdom of God only moves forward when we too are willing to take a risk. Then lastly, number six this morning. Good stewards take reasonable risk in order to advance God's kingdom. I'm not talking about foolhardy risk. I'm talking about reasonable risk. Recently, our student and young adult ministry began a fundraising project. Jason Till had actually worked with the students according to the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. He gave each of our middle and high school students a $10 bill and told them to use it to make more money to invest it well for this campaign. The students came back to Jason and gave him over, listen to this, over $5,000 that they had made by investing that money. And between the students and the young adults, there was over $10,000 that was given. They invested it well. They've become an example for us. Amen. Let's close with the story about William Borden. Wonderful story. A very difficult story in some ways. William Borden was the favorite son of the famous Borden family. He prepared for graduation from Yale University in 1909. At that time, he became a part of John R. Mott's student volunteer movement and responded to the call to take the gospel to the whole world. He surprised his Ivy League contemporaries by surrendering to God's call to foreign missions in the wilds of western China. The whole nation watched as the young millionaire missionary raised his own support. Turning his back on the affluence and comfort of America, he set sail to travel to the Chinese mission field. He disembarked in Cairo, Egypt, in order to take a time of preparation. But while in Cairo, he contracted spinal meningitis. And on April 9, 1913, 25-year-old William Borden died in a lonely hospital room. It appeared as if William Borden had risked everything for nothing. But he knew better. Before his death, he scrawled on a pad of paper a now famous six-word message to the world. It goes like this. No reserve, no retreat, no regrets. No reserve, no retreat, no regrets. I risked everything. My very life, I risked. But it was worth the gospel to risk it. I did it for the sake of the gospel.
What are we willing to risk for the sake of the gospel? These next five weeks are going to be very important in our lives. They'll challenge our sense of Christian stewardship. It will be tested. We will be all asked to take a risk for Jesus Christ so that His church and His kingdom might be advanced. So I ask you this morning, will you pray about the financial commitment that God wants you to make to this campaign? I'm simply asking for prayer right now. Do you pledge yourself, do you commit yourself to pray that you will listen to God in terms of what He wants you to do in this campaign? And you're going to begin to pray about that. Listen to God. If you'll do that, would you lift your hand for me right now? If you'll pray about what God wants you to do in this campaign. Thank you so very much. And of course, this morning as we close, before God wants yours, He wants you. Always true. He doesn't care about what you got until He's got you. He wants you. If you've never committed your life to Him, you can do it today. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time that you've given us today. We pray, Lord, that you would help us now to make the commitments that would please you, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.